Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. One of the things that always astonished me was the calmness of these trainee glider pilots when anything went wrong. Most of them at some time during training escaped catastrophe by the skin of their teeth. Yet, if anything, it spurred them on rather than discouraged them. Here is the account of a somewhat unhappy yet satisfying afternoon in the life of one of them, Lieutenant Colonel John Place, told in his own words. I had only three flights to do to complete my course. On the day in question, the weather was heavily overcast with thick cloud and mist down to about a thousand feet or less. However, low-toe glider flying was in full swing. I was duly authorised to take up a fully ballasted Hotspur glider, and having signed the Form 700 and the flight authorisation book, and having given instructions to the tug pilot for a low-toe, off we went. We'd just become airborne and had not yet reached the boundary fence when the cockpit lid of the Hotspur which I had taken particular care to see was correctly latched, flew open. I instinctively jammed my left elbow into the perspex just above the lower framework of the cockpit lid and tried to slam the cover shut. But the wind pressure was much too strong for me and after two or three frantic attempts, the wind was definitely not only coming into the cockpit but was going through me, vertically. I couldn't communicate with the tug and as we were not far off the ground, I decided to try to sit tight with my left elbow still jammed in the left side of the lid 
and hoped that I could stay there long enough to gain some height before either the lid got the better of me and blew away, or I could attract the tug pilot's attention by one or another of the accepted signals. We had, however, barely cleared the aerodrome boundary when the tug pilot turned fairly smartly on a left-hand circuit, and I barely managed to follow him as the pressure of the cockpit was forcing me into the right-hand corner, and I was getting more tired every second, especially as I began to feel that the trim of the glider was all wrong and was much too nose-heavy. By this time, we were turning on the downwind leg of the field, some considerable distance out. Then lots of things crossed my mind in a hurry. I realised I would have to fly with my knees when I wished to release the rope. The release plug was, of course, on the left side of the cockpit and out of reach of my already very occupied left hand and arm. I also realised that I shouldn't be able to use the flaps either, the lever being well down on the left-hand side, level with my knees, nor could I trim the glider, which was already nose-heavy and would be considerably more so after release. In my agitation, I was not keeping very good station behind the tug. The next thing I knew was I was in an almost vertical bank to the right and not more than 100 feet above a pretty considerable wood. What was more startling was the fact that I couldn't see the tug. Not even the rope was visible. And for a second or two, I couldn't realise what had happened as I was still travelling at cruising speed. I did everything I knew to get back on an even keel. The glider just wouldn't budge from a vertical bank and I was losing height fast. I could practically pick out every leaf on every tree as we whipped past. Then suddenly, for no apparent reason and certainly not because of anything I did, I found myself right way up again and looking frantically round for the tug which was not in front of me. In fact, was nowhere in sight through an arc of 180 degrees to the front. Nor could I see the rope. My left elbow was still rammed rigidly into the cockpit lid and my arm by this time was quite paralysed. Then I saw the tug. We were formatting practically wingtip to wingtip at a distance of a few feet. I was on the starboard side of the tug and as I looked across I could see the astonished face of the tug pilot. And I have no doubt my expression of incredulous horror was even more obvious to him. By the grace of God he kept straight on and I managed to fishtail back into position behind him. Then as we gently turned across wind I let go the stick with my right hand reached across and yanked the rope release lever and the rope fell away. I eased the stick back. Nothing happened. I sat back and hauled as hard as I could. Still nothing happened. Then the nose dropped. I took a quick glance at the airspeed indicator, which registered 105 miles per hour and was going up steadily. I had an instant impression of skimming some tall green things, which later turned out to be trees, and my eyes focused a tug aircraft which was approaching to land at its usual 85 to 90 miles per hour. And I was passing him fast while the grass was coming up at a most unnatural angle. With one final haul on the stick, I managed to decrease the angle of descent, but I hit the ground with an appalling bump which jarred every bone in my body, and probably every joint in the hotspur, with its full load of sandbags. As I hit the ground, I saw that my airspeed was over 110 miles per hour. We crossed the whole length of Croughton Airfield, with my nose rammed well into the ground, the control tower bearing down on me at an astonishing rate. I kicked my right foot and pushed the rudder over as far as it would go, Then, with screaming tyres and everything shaking and vibrating, we shot round in a colossal ground loop, ending up back on the tow line, having done a complete circuit of Croughton Airfield on the ground. Having come to rest, I let go my left elbow, which felt as though it was permanently fixed at right angles to my body, but at least the cockpit cover was still on the glider. I went over and reported what had happened to the towmaster and asked if I could finish off the other two flights, which I had to do, as the weather hadn't got any worse. I got into another hot spur for another low tow and away we went. 
We had scarcely cleared the end of the airfield when, for apparently no reason whatever, the tug pilot climbed straight into the low overcast. Before I knew what had happened, we were in thick cloud and I couldn't see the tug. I thought the best thing to do was to stay on tow as long as possible in case anybody else below was taking off. However, flying by the angle of the rope, I held on, and then, with a little more than a thousand feet on the clock, when it should have been 200 or 300 feet, I decided that the only thing to do was to pull off and see if I could get down somewhere without bending myself or the aircraft too much. So, I pulled off and got my speed down to 65 miles per hour on a course which I judged to be approximately a crosswind. Suddenly, I broke cloud about a mile from a village, which I recognised as being a good four miles from the aerodrome, and I had a thousand feet on my altimeter. On takeoff, I had noticed that the wind was reasonably strong, so that I thought, with luck, I might just scrape back to the airfield. And more by luck than good judgment, I quite literally scraped through the top twigs in the boundary hedge on the upwind side of the airfield and a little to one side of the takeoff path. We were gliding so slowly by this time that the poor old Hotspur actually flopped onto the grass and barely moved 30 yards. I still had one more flight to do to complete my quota before the CFI's test and I only hoped that the third and last leg would not be like the previous two. I was more than relieved when it ended up a perfectly uneventful low toe. About this time, I took part in an extraordinary demonstration in front of Winston Churchill, as he then was. I'd flown up to RAF Kidlington, had one circuit duel on the Hotspur, and found it an amusing glider to fly. I remember I joined in with a series of other glider pilots carrying out what they called the dive approach. It was most exhilarating. The pilot was towed to 1,000 feet at one end of the airfield and then, putting the glider's nose down, he dived straight at the ground, flying along without engines at some 50 feet above the ground, turning left by the hangars and then landing just over the hedge with a bump. It was an amazing sight to see the gliders release upwind of the airfield, somewhere in the region of 1,000 feet, dive sharply and watch their speed gathering as they went. For the demonstration, which was to be given in front of Churchill, the Prime Minister had demanded a display by a full airborne division. It was not a very successful effort, for there was a very limited number of tug aircraft and parachute aircraft, and all that could be produced were a few Whitleys for the parachutists, about 30 in number, and nine hectares towing nine Hotspur gliders, one of which I flew. The parachutists dropped in a field, which did not impress Winston, owing to the small number, and the nine Hotspurs, which were released at 10,000 feet, came in to land in front of the gathered VIPs. The first glider overshot and nearly ran the Prime Minister down. Two landed correctly, and then I followed the leader of the next three. The leader turned into land, hit the top of the trees edging the field and took his wing off. I can still see the splinters as it cartwheeled in front of me. I landed with my heart in my mouth and only just stopped in time in front of the Prime Minister. It is the only time I've had a close-up of this famous man. It is amazing to relate that no one was seriously injured that afternoon. And I understand that Winston was furious at the poverty of the numbers with which we had tried to impress him. I also believe that fireworks from Downing Street resulted. A curious situation was arising with regard to the horser gliders. Many were coming from the factories, hundreds in fact, and they were all parked round RAF Netherhaven, but there were hardly any tugs that could be spared to tow them into the sky. The horser was truly a remarkable aircraft. The pilots sat side by side in a cockpit, which was not unlike a conservatory with an almost 360-degree view. There were two control columns of the spade grip type. On the panel were a height and airspeed indicator and a compass. And beside the pilot were the flap controls and the brakes. Otherwise, there were no other instruments to worry about. Designed as a high-winged monoplane, it had a detachable undercarriage and a nose wheel. 
Two sliding doors gave access to the large cabin, which had seating capacity for over 30 men. A bifurcated hemp rope was attached to the leading edges of the wings, with a special fitting for quick release, the main rope being 150 feet long and attached to the tail unit of the tug bomber. One afternoon, I flew the first of the horse deliveries. It was an extraordinary experience. The procedure is for the tug and glider to move into position with the ground crew waiting by the glider. Silence is noticeable, as compared with the noise of the engines of ordinary aircraft. The crew by the bomber signal her forward until the rope is taut along the runway, then the thumbs-up signal is given to the glider ground crew, who in turn give it to the glider pilot in charge of the glider. He sits on the left or port side of the glider cockpit. Interwound in the hemp rope is the intercommunication wire between the tug pilot and the glider pilot. There is a crackling sound in the earphones of the glider pilot and a conversation, somewhat like the following takes place. Tug Y66117 calling. Tug Y66117 calling. Hello, Matchbox. Are you receiving me? Are you receiving me? Over to you. Over. Glider K661 answering. Glider K661 answering. Yes, loud and clear. Yes, loud and clear. Are you receiving me? Over. OK, Glider. Tug calling. Loud and clear. OK, loud and clear. Are you ready for takeoff? Are you ready for takeoff? OK, Tug. Ready for takeoff. Ready for takeoff. Over to you. Over. OK, Glider. I shall now take up the slack. I will climb to 2,000 feet and steer at 75 degrees. OK, Tug. OK, Tug. OK, Glider. OK, Glider. Closing down now. Off. Thus the conversation goes, and the tug engines gradually rev up. The tug moves slowly forward and the glider pilot holds the brakes on until the rope is fully taut when gradually the glider moves forward behind the tug. It is a thrilling and strange sensation. The dust flies up from behind the tug and the speed increases 50 miles, 60 miles, 75 miles an hour. The glider pilot eases back the control column, the nose wheel comes off the runway and into the air the glider jumps. The tug aircraft still rumbles along the runway and the glider at the end of the rope flies above it. The only sound is the rush of the slipstream, a clear roar of rushing air. The handling is rough, for there is no finesse in glider construction. Soon the tug leaves the ground, the runway drops below and the whole combination is airborne. The ground below slowly recedes and both aircraft climb into the sky. It is a delightful sensation and one that can never be produced by other means. At 2,000 feet, the tug levels out and flies on a course. At this height, the glider pilot, who is flying above the tug, drops into the low toe position below the tug. In lowering the glider, he slides through the slipstream of the tug and flies below the tug to keep the rope just above the cockpit. There are only two positions, high and low. The latter is used for bad weather flying, for by flying in the position of the V of the rope, the glider can keep roughly in position. For above, it is almost impossible to keep position if in cloud or fog. At the end of the exercise, the tug flies back to the airfield on receiving a radio signal from the ground that the glider may land. The glider pilot reaches forward and pulls the tow rope release handle, the rope snapping away out of its sockets in the wings. There is a slight jolt, then a feeling of exultation as the glider rushes away. The glider becomes incredibly smooth and a strange silence comes over the cockpit. On my first flight in a horser, I felt that I never wanted to come down again, but just to drift on up there forever. The height indicator, however, does not permit this. Eyes must be kept on the airfield lest the glider get too far away and unable to get back to the runway. It was borne in on me, as I flew this great bird of wood and glue and bits of tin, that the training in flying a conventional aircraft was suited also to flying gliders. We never rumbled in in powered aircraft. We always throttled back and ticked over into a glider landing. 
I found myself using the same technique for judging and assessing height as before. As the pilot turns into the final run, he pulls the flap lever to half flap and with a great hiss from the air bottles and from the wings, two flaps or air brakes come down into position. The glider checks and the nose is pushed down. At the right moment, the full flap is pulled on and the glider takes on an ever steeper angle. The ground rushes up, the control column is eased back and the glider lands safely and gently and runs forward only a few yards in doing so. But horses, like hot spurs, or for that matter any glider, horse or human being, react according to the way they are handled and to the burden they carry. There is an amusing story told by Major T.D.B. Macmillan, MC, that illustrates this. This story has a sequel about which the reader will hear later. Here it is. The horse gliders have been loaded and lined up for takeoff under supervision of the battalion airloading officer. We had already been briefed as to which glider each of us was to fly to Hearn, and as soon as we arrived at Netheravon, we went to check our own gliders. The air landing battalion had not inplaned, but when I peered into the inside of my own particular horse, I was horrified to see what they had seen fit to cram into it. It was obviously the battalion HQ glider because, besides a jeep and trailer and three motorcycles, most of the battalion orderly room equipment had been piled into it. By this time my passengers had arrived and it was too late to do anything except to protest feebly against the gross maltreatment of a poor horser, not to mention its slightly reluctant pilot. The senior passenger introduced himself as Colonel Jones, commanding the battalion, and we all climbed aboard, strapped ourselves in and prepared for the worst. At least I did, for I knew roughly what to expect, but my passengers were mercifully ignorant of the behaviour of an overloaded horser on takeoff. For those who do not know Netheravon Aerodrome, I must stop to describe this prototype of all aerodromes. Most prototypes bear little relation to the glossy up-to-date model, and Netheravon was no exception. It was a grass aerodrome, which in my jaundiced view seemed to be built on two hills. Our gliders were marshalled on one hill and were due to take off towards the other. To make matters worse, our towing aircraft was to be a slow, underpowered Whitley. When our turn for takeoff came, the tow rope tightened and we started trundling forward. The normal procedure was that the horser, being the lighter of the combination, should take off before the towing aircraft and should keep above its slipstream all the time. Not so in our case. The assorted ironmongery and my poor glider kept us anchored firmly to the ground long after the panting Whitley was airborne. We eventually became unstuck, but long before we could gain any altitude, the second of Netheravon's two hills was upon us, and once more we felt our wheels tumbling and bouncing along on the turf. At last, with a Herculean effort, our gallant tug yanked us off the ground and we started to climb. It was then that the tricky part began. I was well below the slipstream and had to climb through it to gain my correct position. This, at the best of times, was not a pleasant operation, and to do it before one had gained a proper flying speed and in an overloaded glider is not to be recommended. We staggered up through the turbulent air, alternately wallowing and corkscrewing and eventually won through to smoother air above the Whitley. It had been a few moments of great tenseness, and I was not really in a frame of mind to observe the niceties of protocol when the somewhat grey-faced colonel poked his head through the intercom door to ask if everything was all right. The rest of the flight went smoothly, and by the time we reached Hearn, both physical and mental equilibrium had been restored, though Colonel Jones's parting words made it quite clear that his opinion of military gliding was not of the highest. I was to meet Colonel Jones less than four months later, and the recognition was mutual. This was an amazing period of my life, for I seemed to be all and everything, depot commander, 
disciplinarian, confidant of the RAF, advisor to the army and General Dog's body. The parachute force was building up in strength and was becoming very demanding. The air landing brigade was also at full strength, but handicapped by little or no flying, because there were few tugs for the mass of gliders already crowding the park round Netheraven. By now, some 600 glider pilots were in training, and the first course was on its way to the depot at Tillshead. It was as if the head were meeting the tail. As I had foreseen, there was undoubtedly an atmosphere between those who had been on the flying courses and those who had not. Lieutenant Colonel Rock was obviously a brilliant officer, studious and courageous, who had been one of the first parachutists and the original protagonist for the airborne operations at the War Office. In fact, he was the pioneer. However, his outlook was different from mine. I could see that he did not approve of my spit and polish methods, and he insisted that I slacken them off. I, of course, argued with him, but he was determined, and I think he had decided already that I was not of his school. However, events settled the question of our differences in outlook. The first event was that the 2nd Battalion, the Glider Pilot Regiment, was created, and I was selected to be its commander. This, of course, parted us, and we could follow our own ideals and ideas, despite the fact that we were both in the same camp. The second event, however, was more tragic. Colonel Rock was a brave man and felt that he must show an example to his command. Night flying was one of the most important features of glider training and he was determined to encourage and improve training methods. I remember warning him in conversation to respect the fact that he had little or no knowledge of night flying and to obtain as much duel as possible before he started experimenting. However, one night he decided to take a night flight with a second pilot who had just recently returned from the glider pilot school. They were towed off by a Hector tug, and unfortunately, as they were taking off, the rope parted from the tug. In trying to make a landing in the dark, the pilot hit an obstacle. The sandbag load in the back of the glider broke through the bulwark, and both Colonel Rock and the pilot were badly crushed. Rock was so badly hurt that although he lingered for a day or so, he died of his injuries. Part of an obituary, clearly written by a colleague which appeared in the Sunday Express, read, Lieutenant Colonel John Frank Rock, pioneer of British paratroops and airborne forces, has given his life for his work. After surviving a number of narrow escapes in experimental parachute jumping and glider work, he died in a military hospital from injuries received in a glider crash. He always tested the risk himself before asking his men to do it, and such was the force of his example that we gladly followed where he had led. Rock's death brought about immediate changes. I was transferred from the command of 2nd Battalion to the command of the 1st Battalion, something I did not relish, since the officers of this battalion were naturally loyal to Rock and likely to take badly to me. The command of the 2nd Battalion was handed over to Lieutenant Colonel Ian Murray, whose story is an interesting one, in that originally he had been the Auxiliary Air Force and had therefore considerable experience as a pilot. However, he had left the RAF to join the Grenadier Guards and had arrived at General Browning's headquarters as a possible ADC. The General, however, had referred him to me, and so Ian Murray had joined the regiment with enthusiasm. He helped me enormously in the whole build-up of the glider pilot regiment, and finally went off on a full course of flying. In doing so, he had risen from lieutenant to lieutenant colonel in the amazingly short time of a year. As things turned out, he was more than eminently suited to be one of our leaders. The regiment had taken shape now, and one battalion had been through the flying schools and was back in the depot. The second battalion was about to be formed. This was the situation when the 1st Airborne Division was posted overseas, to battle. For the glider pilot regiment, this was astonishing, for they were a regiment of pilots whose only experience of flying was in the schools, and they had practically no operational flying or training. 
whatsoever. This being the case, I visited GSO1 with Group Captain Tom Cooper DFC and I recited the facts. We both spoke as pilots of experience and we argued that to send overseas 200 to 300 pilots who had had, in all, little over eight hours glider flying over the last six months and who were therefore totally unfit for operations was a mistake. I suggested that the pilots should be left behind and given a concentrated course of flying, both by day and night, and then flown out to join the Airborne Division in Africa. However, I was not heeded, and it was decided that the pilots should go out in the same way as the rest of the division. The die was cast, and there was nothing I could do about it, but I was becoming somewhat mystified about the setup of Airborne Divisional Headquarters. General Browning seemed to have been changed from Divisional Commander and had become known as Major General Airborne Forces. He, in turn, was relieved by Brigadier Hopkinson, the original commander of the 1st Air Landing Brigade, who was an unusual little man with a little knowledge of the air in that he had flown as an amateur in peacetime and had made his name by being a founder of the Phantom Force, a communications group. It was an interesting situation, for up to this time there had been a strong rivalry between the parachute side of affairs and the air landing troops, or so it seemed to me. The main reason was that the aircraft had been very difficult to obtain and therefore rivalry arose as to who should have such aircraft as they became available for practising operations. The Airborne Division had been desperately trying to put itself across and although we had built up an extremely strong esprit de corps our requirements were quite often ignored because the Air Force were reluctant to part with bombers for the purpose of towing gliders or dropping parachute troops. On one occasion, a party of MPs came down to see the airborne forces and we put on a demonstration to show them the state of readiness of the airborne division. I was in a glider which carried 30 of the MPs and General Browning. Owing to a lack of practice, both the pilots crashed the gliders and their loads were battered and shaken. In my glider was Miss Ellen Wilkinson, who broke an ankle. A question was subsequently asked in the House of Commons, was your journey really necessary? However, it did bring to the notice of the authorities that the airborne forces were in a pretty poor state. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.